The history of God's people reveals a tendency to recline in periods of comfort, grumble in times of resistance, or resign in the face of opposition. However, the providence of God is most clearly seen in the persistent obedience of a remnant that takes hold and ownership of the promises of God despite circumstances, logistics, and prospects. God's people must be burdened by what God is burdened with, passionate about what God is passionate about, and faithful as God is faithful. I'm humbled today as I stand in this pulpit. I made a note last night, and you might have saw it on Facebook or seen it on Facebook, that this marks the 52nd sermon that I have preached since Brother Allen uh, uh, left Denver Street. That's one year. There's 52 weeks in a year. That's 52 Sundays. That's one year. Now, it's actually the 53rd sermon because I preached here once before Brother Allen came in 2018, but I didn't think about that um, last week, and so I didn't think to make a note of it. And it actually works out better this week anyway because we're starting a new sermon series, and it makes more sense to, you know, Mark today is my 52nd sermon preaching from this pulpit, even if it is the 53rd. First came after Brother Allen left on May 31st, 2020, and then again on June 21st before beginning a five-week sermon series through a selection of Acts that started on July 5th and went on through August 2nd. It was then at the end of that sermon series that I submitted my candidacy to the uh, pulpit search committee to be considered as pastor. I met with the pulpit search committee for the first time on August 16th, and I was rigorously interviewed with, with a focus on doctrine, thanks to Miss Carolyn. And that is something to brag about. And then I was interviewed and considered before the church on August 23rd. I preached again before coming on as pastor on October 11th, 2020. And in reflecting on this, I really am truly humbled that God could call someone like me to be a shepherd to his people. I've been entrusted by you and, and I think more importantly by God to more than I could ever possibly manage on my own. In reflecting on this and the significance of this milestone date for me, I recall my surrender to ministry in 2018. My early sermons, my first pastorate at Temple Baptist Church in Rogers, and now I even reflect on the burden that I felt when I was first called here. You see, I think it's still fresh in our minds to jump back one year ago to the beginning of 2020 when the world was experiencing an unprecedented toilet paper crisis. It was a difficult time for all of us, but it was also a difficult time for those of us who were serving in ministry. You see, in Rogers, I was between the two counties in the state with the highest number of cases of coronavirus infections. Remember, 
was also a chaplain at a hospital where I was getting firsthand reports of how bad the infection was, how it was affecting people, how it was leaving families without loved ones. Remember my situation too. While I was in the demographic that would experience less turmoil or less consequences from this, I had in my household a demographic that was exceptionally vulnerable. Charlotte was four months old. My wife was pregnant. As the pastors at Temple Baptist met, I was on the cautious side of the fence. Not only to protect our people, but to protect my family. It wasn't an easy time in ministry. And still, I got the news that Brother Allen had been called away, and I thought about the many churches, the the many churches that were left without a pastor and who were experiencing the same turmoil that I was experiencing at Temple without a shepherd to care for God's people. Churches that were having to undergo a difficult season for vetted and weathered leadership without leadership. Brother Wade, I remember at one point when I told him, you know, because it's a big deal if you're on staff at a church to go to your pastor and say, by the way, for the next five to seven weeks, I will not be here. Brother Wade, no big deal. He encouraged me to preach and he gave me many opportunities to preach as any good leader should. And, but he was taken off guard by it because of the circumstances and because of the conversations that we were having. I remember him coming to me, Brother Derek, what's caused this change of heart? You're so cautious. Even maybe leaning to, to the more cautious side of our pastoral staff And now you're going to preach at a church in a different community. It's a lot of travel, which means you have to stop for gas and uh, more possibilities of exposure and everything else. And you're you're leaving to do this. Where'd this change of heart come from? And I remember in this conversation when talking with Brother Wade, I I wouldn't say it's one of the few moments because I'm a crier when it comes down to it. But I became verklempt and I looked at Brother Wade and I said, Brother Wade, I've just realized there's something more important. So burdened by churches that needed leaders. It was actually in considering this that I was prompted to consider submitting my candidacy as your pastor a year ago. So here we are. You verified God's call. First, I felt burdened. I knew God's call. And then you validated it as as His church body. My first pastorate was only two years long. At the national meeting this week, one of my friends said the reason pastors stay at churches for an average of two to three years is because they run out of material. And if you don't think that's true, follow some of these guys around. They jump from church to church and they just hit the reset button and preach through the same sermons they preached before. 
My first pastorate was two years long because that's what God had planned for it. I have no anticipation or expectations that I would have a short pastorate again. I love you all, and I'm glad to be here. And I know that there is more than 104 weeks worth of sermons in this book. In fact, I know I could spend a lifetime, and I don't think I would be able to mine all of the truth in the New Testament alone. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to serve God's kingdom in the way that he's called us, and I'm excited to serve alongside you. In my time as pastor here, God has continued to reaffirm his call. He has provided for us as a church with incredible markers that I think today we should be celebrating. Think about what's happened in the past year despite difficult circumstances. We have had three professions of faith, observed two baptisms. We've welcomed four church members joining our fellowship. And even though, or I'd say, I think this is worth celebrating, we've had an average church attendance weekly of 38 members. Now think about this. On March 4th of this year, we saw our highest attendance with 75 people attending our morning worship services. Another statistic. If you compare the first three months of my time here at Denver Street, October, November, December, the average weekly attendance to the most recent three months, May, June, July, it's been a 26% increase in weekly attendance. We went from an average of 34 to 43. That's a huge jump. 26%. That is a huge jump. God is working. God is moving. God is using this church. And then later this year, we have something else to celebrate. The church plant from this church. Remember, we sent Jim Tolleson to plant a church to bring the gospel to the people of Alma, Arkansas. That church is getting ready to organize. We're bringing the gospel to our communities, to our Samarias. My question now is what's next? What's next for us? This evening, we'll have our annual church conference, and this, I hope, will be somewhat different than what we experience in our monthly church conference. I hope we'll do more than just review financial statements, minutes, correspondence. But I pray that we would use this annual church conference as an opportunity for us to plan for the future because God is going to continue to do things through His church and through His people if we will remain obedient to Him. The mission that we have as a church in Scripture is clear. To go make disciples, baptize new believers. We've organized this so that we can have a clear vision of how we're going to accomplish this mission. We've said that we are going to point people to God, to pull people to one another, and to prepare people for mission. As we celebrate this past year and all the many things God has done through this ministry, I want us to be thinking about what we're going to do next. Because we cannot recline into a state of complacency. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of issues that have the potential to become divisive, we need to remember whose we are. 
united under one banner of the kingdom of heaven with one purpose, to glorify Him. If God can use this church as he, as he has used us over the radical year that we've experienced so far, imagine what He can do in the coming years, in the coming months, and in the coming weeks. My friends, this is our time to plan for the future, and we must do so according to God's will and wisdom, which we can find only in Scripture. That is why I ask you to study with me prayerfully over the next coming weeks the example given to us in the book of Nehemiah. All of that said, by the way of introduction, let's get into the text this morning. If you would, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Read along with me as I read, but before we read, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the blessing that you've given us and this people. God, I thank you for the privilege that we have to be here this morning to, to study your word and to worship you. And God, I thank you for those of us who are here in obedience to worship you. God, I pray that you continue to show us through your word truths that we do not know, that we cannot see, that you would reveal them to us. God, I pray that you would make us what we are not, that you would make us people who resemble you. Lord, I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, that you would reveal to us the question I've presented this morning that you would answer, or at least start to answer. What's next? In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. The Bible says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the city, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire." As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before God, before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you will return to me and keep my commandments and do them through your outcast, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, 
From there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The first chapter of the book of Nehemiah. I think the best place to start whenever we're beginning a new sermon series or looking at a new book is to place it in the proper context. Because as we've talked about before, the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. So we need to understand what's going on here. What's this mean? And who's this guy talking? And why is he talking? And, and all of these different things. The exciting questions that everyone sticks around for. I'm, I'm trying to build you up. Maybe I'll set the expectations Low enough because we're going to be talking about some biblical history that if I get excited at some point during it, maybe, you know, if your expectation's low enough, you'll say, hey, that wasn't so bad. I say that, but I want you to realize that biblical history, especially here and understanding what's happening, gives us so much light and truth and excitement and, and it brings this to life, the circumstances that have come about. Now, who's talking? The words of verse 1 tells us, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Okay, so there's this guy, Nehemiah. Who's that guy? Well, he's the son of Hakaliah. That's helpful, isn't it? Well, who is this guy? Hakaliah. Doesn't seem to matter much, does it? I always think it's kind of funny. Hakaliah, in fact, isn't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except... In Nehemiah chapter 10, when Nehemiah starts to take some genealogies of his people, Hekeliah has no other mention. His pedigree doesn't matter much. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Who's this Nehemiah guy? Let's find out what time is he living in and what's going on. Let's back up just a little bit to understand the biblical history that surrounds these circumstances. Um, because what we find here... In reading Nehemiah's prayer, is a man who is brokenhearted for his people. What's happened to lead up to this moment? I've said before, whenever we look at the biblical narrative or what's happening in the Bible, that we find kind of a cyclical pattern. God provides for God for his people. People worship God in obedience. They love God. There's blessings. And then it isn't long after that, God's people turn in rebellion or faithlessness away from God. They become idolatrous. They disobey God. And so, as a loving father should, God judges his people. Over and over again, we see this pattern happening in the Bible. We jump back to the, the, the real... I wouldn't call it the climax. The cross is the climax. But if we jump back to the moment in time when God's people had a nation, they had a king, and there was one king, they were united, and they were really experiencing these promised blessings, I think we'd have to jump back to King David. We can say what we want about King David. He sinned. He was a man. But if we really look at his life, especially after a time of repentance... 
we can say that David loved God. And there were blessings for Israel. And David gave birth. No, David didn't give birth, but David had a son, Solomon. Solomon would become the next king. And Solomon, what a guy. I mean, he had everything. He inherited his father's kingdom. He was a smart guy. People would come to him, and because he was wise, he ended up getting more things. People would come to him for counsel and for insight and for, to, to, to spend time with him. I mean, imagine a guy like Solomon. What do you get the guy that has everything? They just get him more stuff. What a special guy. But Solomon did not love God the way that his father had. Solomon took many wives. And most consequently, some of the wives that Solomon took were not God's people. He disobeyed an instruction given by God that was important to preserve and and make preservations for the lineage of David that would bring about the Messiah into the world. God had given clear instructions that this was important because it needed to be preserved. And, And Solomon and his disobedience, what happens during Solomon's reign or shortly after Solomon's reign? First time there is division in a people that are supposed to be united to one another. Israel is split apart into two halves. There's a northern half and there's a southern half. The ten tribes of Israel make up the northern part, and then there's two tribes, the smaller tribes, in fact, that make up Judah. Instead of being a united country, united by the providence of God and what He's provided them, as a consequence of disobedience, we begin to see judgment starting to take place. The nation is divided. The nation is divided. Nearly 200 years later, in 732 B.C., we find that the Assyrians conquer the northern land of Israel. The ten tribes of Israel are taken back as slaves and as prisoners, and and it just continues to get worse. Judah hangs on. They hang on for a while. But in 598, after the Assyrians are conquered by Babylon, Babylon comes and now conquers Judah, the period of time that we now refer to in biblical history as the Babylonian captivity, when Israel had no land. There was no Israel. There was no Judah. They were both conquered. But people are awful. Because now the Assyrians have come and conquered Israel, and the Babylonians came and conquered Assyria, and then conquered Judah, and now now the Persian Empire begins to take reign in the world. And the Persian Empire conquers Babylon. And this is good news. Because after a period of judgment, leading God's people into repentance for the first time, we find that in the beginning of the Persian Empire, Emperor Cyrus makes a decree that he will send some people back to Jerusalem to rebuild, to reestablish. The 
This is in 539 BC if you're interested in timelines. But the problem is rebuilding is not an easy task. There's really three phases of rebuilding. First phase, Cyrus sends this group of people to rebuild. They build an altar. They don't get much farther than that. 458 B.C. Almost 100 years after the first group of people went back to rebuild in Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, Ezra goes back. And they rebuild the temple. And if you look at the book of Ezra and you start looking at what's just happened, because this is immediately before Nehemiah's time, by less than 10 years, Ezra goes back and he unites the people once again on the altar of God. He leads the people to worshiping God the way that they're supposed to. They're making sacrifices the way the law of Moses has instructed them to do. The people are living in obedience. But there's that cycle again. A time of spiritual uplift and recharge because God's doing something. We could truly call this a period of revival in Israel's history. And here they are under the leadership of Ezra. And the people begin marrying people from other regions. Adopting idols for worship. The same thing that Solomon did that really started this downward spiral from the, the high point in Israel's history. And Ezra weeps. He sees what the people are doing and he, and he weeps. He cries out in intercession to God to forgive these people who don't know what they're doing. And through his leadership, the people see a man weeping. They acknowledge their own sinfulness. There's another period of revival. And that's exactly where we're at as we begin Nehemiah chapter 1. The cycle's already taken place. Uh, Nehemiah's brother, Hakaliah, is that his name? Sorry, that's his dad. Hananiah. He's in Jerusalem. He comes to Nehemiah, this guy. We don't know who he is, except the, the last line in the chapter. He's cupbearer to the king, so that's kind of, okay, that's cool. But, but Hanani comes to him, and, and, and here's Nehemiah's question. What's happening in Jerusalem? Ten years ago, Ezra went there. We've been there for over a hundred years. Things weren't kind of stalemated for a little while. Ezra went there. Ezra's been there for 10 years. How are things going? And he, he gets this word from his brother. He, he, his brother says, the remnant that were there in the province who had survived the exile, they're in great trouble. They are in great shame. And by the way, the wall of Jerusalem in the past 100 plus years since we've been sent back with a decree from King Cyrus, the new emperor of the Persian Empire, who gave us permission to rebuild, that wall still not rebuilt. It's broken down. 
and its gates are destroyed by fire. One hundred years. I think about this. What happens to rubble after a hundred years? It's not rubble anymore. It's just part of the landscape. Grass has started to take root. You could mow over it probably. The great wall of Jerusalem. Said I'd do the boring part first. So there's our biblical history. David faithfully repents, loves God. Solomon, not so much. Descent, division in the nation that God gave them, a division between Israel and Judah. Assyrians conquer Israel, Babylonians conquer Assyria, and then, Bab- and then Judah. And, and now the Persian Empire has taken over Babylon. And, and with that came people being sent back 100 years later. Not a lot of progress has been made. Nehemiah then, here he is. I said, what's happened? Now let's ask, who is this Nehemiah guy? We really don't know too much about him from from the Bible. His pedigree doesn't tell us much. It does say, though, that he is, as I pointed out, the cupbearer to the king. I want to point out that this book is Nehemiah being used by God and leadership to lead his people to rebuild this wall, to reestablish a system of worship that was prescribed in the law of Moses. And Nehemiah is not a significant man. His pedigree doesn't matter, does it? I said, Hakaliah, who is this guy? We don't know. He's only mentioned one other time in the Bible, and we don't know anything about him. God uses insignificant people. David, who we mentioned earlier, who was the king who united Israel, before he was king, wasn't he an insignificant shepherd boy? Weren't the majority of Jesus' disciples fishers? Wasn't Moses, when God called him to lead his people, a sojourner in a distant land who had no rights or privileges, who was estranged from his adoptive family and his birth family? God appoints a time for his people, and he's the one who is appointing them. All of these things in history had happened. The situations and the circumstances for the prospects of the land and the people of God, they they don't look good at this point in history. But here's a man with an insignificant pedigree who's placed in a vital position. He's cupbearer to the king. That means that he had the responsibility of drinking what the king would drink or eating what the king would eat before the king ate it in the event that it was poison that Nehemiah would drop dead and the king wouldn't. Now, it sounds like this isn't a really important or glorified role, but we have to understand in the cultural context the amount of trust that's placed in this person. How close this person or this position is to the king. We see it, it plays an advantage 
in the next step. But it didn't happen by accident or by mistake. The Bible doesn't tell us how Nehemiah came to be cupbearer. It tells us that he was cupbearer. And here's what's significant in that is God had taken this man who doesn't necessarily look like he's going to have great prospects, but he's placed him in an important role. He's now cupbearer to the king. He's in a position, and God's going to use that position to bless his people. In God's providence, all things, even though it looks dismal, it all seems to work out. I'm a better way to say that, even though the circumstances surrounding Israel's history up until this point look dismal, God is still in control. He's in control of all circumstances and all situations. He's, he's in control of all of these things. And here he is, God, placing Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king. And I want to point out something interesting about Nehemiah. This conversation that he has with his brother just in the first couple of verses, he asks about Jerusalem, and this tells us something about him, doesn't it? Because from the mouth speaks the overflow of the heart. Here's a guy who's in a pretty important position, serving at the right hand of the king, and still the overflow of his heart, the burden of his heart, is to ask about his people. I ask them concerning the Jews who escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Here he is serving in this position at the right hand of the king and his heart burdens him to ask his brother, how's Jerusalem doing? How are my people doing? Not only that, but when he responds and he gets this bad news, look at the, his reaction, the way that he responds. He, I said, if God can, can, in His providence, provide the ability of this insignificant... I, I, I keep saying insignificant, and that's not what I mean. Nehemiah is an important player like that of Moses, like that of these other men in history. But his background doesn't necessarily provide for it. It's God that provides for this position that he has. And so here he is asking about his people. Look at verse 4. He heard these words. He sat down and he wept and he mourned for the Lord. Two things stand out to me in this beginning section of Scripture or the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. One, God calls who He chooses, not who man would choose. Two, that God's call starts with a burden. Nehemiah, hearing the news of his people of Jerusalem, a land where presumably he didn't grow up there. He hears about this and he weeps. When's the last time we were moved to a point of being able to weep? When's the last time when we prayed we wept? I'm not trying to incite an emotional response. I'm too boring for that. And all of you are too stern-faced to, to pick up on it if I tried. But Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah is so moved by what's happening in the world that he weeps for a people who need God. He weeps for a people who find themselves in circumstances they can't control. 
Hey, think about this. If we were looking at some political situation, we might be capable of standing up and beating our chest and yelling. It's been a hundred and something years since we were sent with permission to rebuild Jerusalem. What's happening? King of Persia, you need to do something. There was a royal decree that, that, that came before you from, King, from Emperor Cyrus, and, and you need to do something about it. He doesn't stand up and beat his chest. He weeps. He falls down and he cries. He's moved with a burden that is inside of him that causes him to weep. When's the last time something happening in the kingdom of God has caused us to weep? We look at church statistics. When's the last time we wept over the state of God's bride? In 2020, only 65% of Americans identified themselves as Christians. That's down almost 12% in a decade. 65%. If that stays on trend, and I think I heard a statistic, but I couldn't find it to cite it, it's actually less than half now. I think it's time to quit calling America a Christian country when less than half of Americans identify as Christian. Only 49% of millennials in 2020 identify as Christian. We look at the church statistics, children who grow up in church are leaving and they're never coming back. We jump and yell and scream about moral issues that the world needs to overcome. But how long has it been since we were moved to weep for the wickedness that was in the world? 42% of American adults say that there should be more than two genders on ID cards. 42% of Americans say there should be more than two genders. In fact, looking at adults between 18 and 29 years old, it's actually 53% that say that. 14 states in the United States of America already provide a third gender option on driver's licenses, including Arkansas. More than half, 59% of U.S. adults, when surveyed about whether they think abortions should be legal in all or most cases, say that it should. We hear these things, and I hope it incites something in you because it certainly incites something within, within me. And I hope you are identifying with how pressing these issues are and it doesn't provoke you to stand up and to beat your chest because that's not the response that God's people should have when we realize that we're not That we belong to his kingdom, not this world's. When we hear these statistics and we read the way that things are going in our world, it should move us to tears, to brokenness, to realize how broken the world is. It should move us to compassion. It should move us to weep. 
We're never going to be successful if we try to legislate moral issues. The people in, in the world don't need more legislation. They don't need more rules. They, they, they need Jesus. The only thing that will cause real change in the world is the transformation that comes from the gospel. It's not information. We can't overwhelm people with statistics. We can't. We've tried it. We've tried presenting to them how wicked some of these things are. I think clearly in good arguments and people don't care. They don't need more information. They need transformation. And the only way that's going to happen is if the people in this world would submit themselves to God and they would surrender themselves to God. And so God's people, upon hearing this, upon hearing the turmoil, the trouble, and the shame that our nation is in, should be moved to weep. Because this isn't just happening between the two oceans we're seated against. This is happening in our state and in our community And God has called us, like Nehemiah, as a group of people to Greenwood, Arkansas, so that we can be the light into the world here in this place, observing Him. And we need to be moved. And if you're not moved, honestly, evaluate your salvation. I'm being so serious. I I could try to present to you why you should be moved by this. I'm not eloquent enough to invoke some sort of an emotional response. But God is. And if you seek alignment to His will and you see things the way that He sees it, you should be moved. And if you aren't, you aren't doing that. These things burden God. They should burden us. I'm running short on time, and I, I, I don't want to hold any of you prisoner this morning, so let me run through Nehemiah's prayer, and I'm not actually going to preach it this morning. I want to give it to you as an example so that when you leave here, you have something to do. We've been talking about application, especially in our Sunday night uh, evening Bible study, about how important it is that we don't just come and hear the Word, but that we apply it to our life because that's where transformation actually comes from. That's where we're actually burdened by God. And, and so let me give you something. If you're struggling to find application this morning, one, evaluate yourself. No, I'm just kidding. If you're struggling, look at Nehemiah's prayer. He gives us an example here. First, I want to point out four points that Nehemiah has in his prayer. I want you to look at them, and I want you to see how you can model them in your life. The first point, glorify God. The first couple of verses here is a doxology. Nehemiah praises God for who he is because we always have something to praise God for. Because this morning when I woke up, I wasn't promised this morning. But through God's grace, I'm here. Not promised tomorrow, but if God calls me home before then, well, great. You guys will have to find another pastor. Sucks for you. Great for me. Because I'll be with Jesus. I have something to glorify God for that He's left me here that I can serve you. Second point. Nehemiah allows himself to be emptied in humbleness to God. He acknowledges, one, who he is as frail, and he acknowledges who his people are and how they've sinned him. 
sinned against God. Third, we find the real confession. A confession of sin that goes along with repentance. If you've ever confessed sin to God and there was no contrition, I'd say it's probably safe to say you went back to that same sin. The psalmist says you're like a dog who vomits and licks it up. Real contrition is necessary to turn away, to change, and to repent. We find real contrition and real confession in Nehemiah's prayer. In the fourth part, Nehemiah asks God for what he has been burdened with. Look at this really fast. We are going to look at this in verse 11. Nehemiah says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to, my prayer, to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Give success to your servant, speaking about himself, today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It says, this man, who is he talking about? Well, the end of verse 11 tells us. He says, I'm cupbearer to the king. Grant me mercy in front of the king. You've called me here. You've burdened me. You've given me the ability. God, use this situation in such a way that I would glorify you. I would encourage you to look at this prayer. And as we continue in this series through Nehemiah, by the way, we've gotten over the history hurdle of it, so it's about to get really exciting. So I hope you'll come back. But as we continue this, I pray that you would continue to pray with me weekly. I pray that you'd spend your time outside of church reading Nehemiah and considering the lessons that we have to learn from it. Because we find ourselves, I think, in the same peculiar situation. COVID, it looks like it's causing issues again. Schools are about to start up. Unvaccinated children are going to be spending time together. The potential for families to continue to be affected by this is tremendous. And it's not going to stop God's church. It's not going to stop God's people from worshiping Him. It's, it's not, I pray that it doesn't. It's not going to cause division. Christians, if you're getting distracted by silly things, same distractions that caused the people after Ezra's leadership to fail to rebuild the wall that 10 years stood by when Nehemiah asked and nothing had been done. Christians, don't fall for it. We should be united in compassion and mercy, whatever that means, that we worship God. We're not here to debate anything else. We're here to worship God. And we're going to keep coming here. And we're going to keep worshiping God. We're going to keep being obedient to Him. We're going to keep interceding on behalf of our neighbors and the people in our community that they would repent of sinfulness, that they would see the real love and mercy of God, that they would be protected from judgment, that wickedness in our world would go away as a consequence of people's lives being changed because Jesus is that powerful. We're going to quit being distracted by everything else.
We'll ask worship leaders to come up and we'll have a, a song.